Well, I'd invite you to turn your attention uh, to Nahum chapter 2. If you have a Bible, uh, turn there now. Um, We have been in Nahum for a couple of weeks now. We've actually been in this series looking at Nineveh for a while. Now we're kind of just a couple weeks to the end, this week and next week, and then we're done. And I want to begin, we're in verses 1 to 13, just if you want to turn there. Uh, But I want to begin by mentioning something that you probably know. Probably many of you participated in this this week, and uh, that is that on Wednesday, it was Pink Shirt Day. Pink Shirt Day. Some of you are still wearing pink shirts. That's great. Um, But see, Pink Shirt Day is, uh, the whole point is it's an anti-bullying campaign, right? We probably know this, that the the goal is that there would be an emphasis placed on the fact that everyone should feel safe in our schools. And we as the church should say, yes, Absolutely. That everyone, regardless of whether we disagree with their worldview or agree, uh, regardless of of race, religion, gender, sexuality, everyone in our school system, they should feel absolutely safe. That's a good thing. That's something that our our system has been working hard towards. Uh, But it's interesting that for all of the efforts that have been made towards anti-bullying, that it still pops up. In fact, I was talking to uh, someone I know who works in the district, the school district, and I said, how did uh, Pink Shirt Day go? Just wondering. And they said, oh, it was really great. You know, we, we didn't even have, we had maybe just a couple of acts of violence this year. So it was pretty good. And I was like, on Pink Shirt Day, you had, he said, yeah, I don't know what it is about the Pink Shirt Day, but people get agitated. They, there's usually one fight or two. I was like, oh, I think you could wait till the next day. But so the, what that tells us is, I mean, it shouldn't surprise us because our, our school system is kind of a microcosm of the reality of our world. And the reality is that even though we try really hard to deal with injustice and discrimination and bullying, it always seems to rear its ugly head. That's, in fact, what we've been seeing uh, on a much larger scale in the book of Nahum, that there are some very big bullies on the block in the Middle East. They are the Assyrians, Nineveh, and they have been bullying everyone around them for generations, including the people of God. God has even tried to reach them. Uh, With Jonah, he sent Jonah to warn them about their evil ways that there's going to be judgment. It's kind of like a bully being brought into the principal's office, right? And you say, look, you can't keep uh, beating up kids. You can't keep doing this. You're going to get expelled. You're going to get, something's going to happen to you. I want want you to know this is serious. And the bully, you know, starts to weep and cry. I'm so sorry. You know, I, I shouldn't do that. You're right. And pledges kindness and love. And so gets sent on his way. And then in a couple of weeks, He's shoving a kid into a locker again, right? Stealing his headphones. What's a good principal going to do? They're going to expel that kid, right? If, he, if he's going to keep doing that, eventually there will be a consequence. And that's what we have in our text today. We have God uh, finally and decisively dealing with the tyranny of the Assyrians, of Nineveh. Now, chapter two and three, uh, which are the last two chapters named, they could really be read together, that they, they bring us right down to ground level with the destruction of the city of Nineveh. But there's a bit of a difference between them. Uh, chapter 3, which we're going to deal with next week, is uh, an emphasis. Uh, it emphasizes what this judgment means to the Ninevites themselves. So to the bullies. Uh, it highlights the fact that they are a wicked, worthless, uh, hopeless people. They brought it on themselves. We're going to see that uh, next week. But this week, chapter 2 emphasizes what this judgment means to the people of God. It highlights the fact that that this is the answer to the justice that they've been longing for. In fact, uh, what it tells all of us is that there is an answer to the justice that people all over the world have been longing for, and it comes in the the activity of God. So we're going to work our way through this text in three points. I'm going to give them to you on the front end. 
Uh, Number one, God restores his people. Number two, God defends the oppressed. And number three, God punishes the wicked. I'm not going to read it uh, all at the front end. We're going to work our way through as we, as we go. So here's number one. God restores his people. Uh, the opening verse, you're going to notice, really sets the tone actually for this, these whole two chapters because God begins by calling out the armies of Nineveh, kind of taunting them. So here's a verse one. You'll see it on the screen. The scatterer, that's God. The scatterer has come up against you, Nineveh. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Now, for those of you who play sports, you know trash talk when you hear it. Uh, this, is, this is God. He's calling out the Ninevites saying, you think you're tough? Get, all your, get everyone together, all your armies together, because you've conquered many people before, but you have never met my army. Now, it's interesting here because while this is very clearly about God's uh, kind of judgment and justice, there is still a word right here in the beginning for his people. Not to the, the Ninevites, but to his people themselves. Look at verse 2. It says, For, so the reason God is doing this, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Now, those two names, Jacob and Israel, are both names for the people of God. But what's interesting is that God uses the word restore. If this was just about justice, you would think that he would use a different word like protect or vindicate. Right? The Lord is protecting the majesty of Jacob, vindicating the majesty of Israel. It's not what he says. Restore gives the idea, the impression, that God's own people have somehow fallen and that they need to be brought back up. And that's, in, that's exactly what has happened. Uh, if, if you have been here before, you know we've touched on this, that God's people have also been in sin. That God's people have not been uh, worshiping him as they should. They've been following false gods. And the activities of the Assyrians, these wicked people, God has actually been using that to discipline his own people. Last week, we saw this verse where God was speaking to his people. He said, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now, by this point, if you've tracked through sort of the history of Nineveh, you may have realized there's a whole lot of things going on. There's different layers of activity. There's the Assyrians doing their thing. There's God's own people. And God is at work in all of it. And so I thought just to kind of give us a picture of the different things, different layers of activity in terms of God's sovereign hand, um, I count seven, seven. um, And so I would like to lay that out for us. And just as a visual, I thought that a seven-layer cake would be helpful because it's yummy, right? So here's the cake. Uh, We're going to call it the chocolate malt sovereignty of God seven-layer cake. Uh, This is a cake you can order online from Milk Bar. It's a bakery in New York that I heard about. It looks really good. So um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through each layer. There's not, I don't know if, I don't know exactly what part is a layer, but there's seven things that I see. So number one, uh, we see that, we see the tyranny of Nineveh very clearly from, in both books, we see that Nineveh, they are a wicked people. That essentially what they want is to rule everyone around them. They don't care about anyone else. And so that is what's driving them. But we see that God is not ignorant of that. The second layer, we see that God is patient. God has allowed them to persist in their wickedness. He hasn't judged them yet. Why? Because he has wanted them to repent. If you remember, he sent Jonah to tell them, "You you need to repent. You need to be saved. And they seem to do that, but now they're right back at it. The third layer, though, is Israel. See, Israel has been idolatrous and unfaithful. They have not followed God the way that they should. And so the fourth layer we see is that God is actually using the Ninevites to teach Israel a hard lesson. 
Now, Israel has learned its lesson. By this point in Nahum, they have, they have repented. They've come back to the Lord. And now, uh, the, what layer am I at? Fifth layer, I think. God is, they are crying out for mercy. They want justice. They're saying, in a sense, Lord, we know that we've wronged. We've come back to you. But now, Lord, the oppression is so hard. Are you going to do something about it? The sixth layer is that God is revealing his justice and his anger towards evil by judging Nineveh. That, that's the word that we've seen here in Nahum very clearly, that God knows what's going on and he wants everyone to know, look, this is my response to evil. I'm gonna come and judge this wicked people. And layer seven, which is the tasty, crumbly stuff on top. Uh, this is God restoring his own people. This is what we see here today, that God restores his own people by punishing the wicked. And so there you see the connection between the wicked people of Nineveh and God's own people who are sometimes wicked, but God is restoring them. It's like a teeter-totter. As the Assyrians have grown stronger, they've pushed down God's people. And in that, God allowed that so that they would learn a lesson. But now, God is going to restore his people by cutting down the Assyrians. And the reason that that restores his people and lifts them up is because it's a very clear message. God is saying, I haven't forgotten you. I know what you're going through. And I am working in history, working in these circumstances to lift you up by dealing with those who oppress you. Now, this is, a, this is a very helpful and kind word from the Lord. Because what we see here is, is not only that those who are feeling low in life, and, and there are many of us probably even today that are, are feeling that sense of weight or, or lowness, uh, perhaps because there is someone who, who is oppressing us in some way, someone who is mistreating us. God's word to us is indeed that he will deal with those who oppress us. But notice, he's even speaking to those who are low because of their own bad choices. Like God's people were there in part because of their idolatry, because of their sin. And God's word to them is, I haven't forgotten you. Even though you have been unfaithful, I will never be unfaithful to you. That my commitment to you is that I will restore you. In 2 Timothy 2.13, I'll just read you this verse. God says, or <clears throat> the, the writer says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. His covenant with his people is that no matter what we do, no matter what bad choices we make, no matter how much we turn our back on God, what we see here is that God is saying, I'm committed to you because my character is one of faithfulness. Do you see the beauty of that? That God's relationship to you has never been about your faithfulness. It's never been about how good you can be, how, how much you can identify sin in your life and turn from it and be perfect. No, Jesus came knowing that you cannot be perfect. God's commitment to you is unwavering because he is perfect, because he is faithful. And his commitment is that he will restore us. In fact, there's this, um, it's a little hard to see, but in verse two, the two names there, uh, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Those two names, that's one guy. Right? One guy named Jacob, who was not a great guy, to be, to be honest. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he was, eh. he, he was kind of a trickster. Uh, he was a liar. But God, God worked in his life, and God renamed him Israel. And, and the, what those names came to signify is that Jacob was the man that he wanted to be. But Israel is the man that God wanted him to be, that God was committed to him being. And so what it's saying here, if you look at the wording, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. So God's saying, I'm working in you. I'm lifting you up. I know you've been, you've been brought low. That was part of my plan. You needed to be, but I have not forgotten you. I will lift you up. 
That's God's plan for each one of us to this very day. He will answer our call. He will restore us to the very best versions of ourselves. I mean, if you are a Christian, just take a moment, just think back to, on your life. Like, even if you've been a Christian for a week, just think back on, on how God is working, how he's changed you. Aren't you so glad that he has not allowed you to be the person that you wanted to be? Aren't you so thankful that all the ideas, all the things that you thought were important, all the way that you wanted to go, that God has sometimes frustrated those and brought you low so that you would learn? And if that's the case, then why is it that we still resist that work of God? Don't we resist it? I know I do. I can look back and say, I'm so thankful, God, for all you've done. But right now, that thing you're leading me to, I, I don't know. I need to pray about that some more because I'm not sure if that's really going to be best for me. We, we, there's something that we forget. We have this weird amnesia. What, what God is reminding us of is, look, I'm working. I'm restoring you. Go where I am leading because I, I hear your pleas for mercy and justice and I'm restoring you into the, the perfect person that you want, that I want you to be. See, the, the challenge of it is, though, that we look around and there seems to be gaps, right, in terms of what God says he's doing, what we see. And that was true of God's people at the time. In fact, there's another um, prophet, just what we need, another prophet. Yes, another prophet, uh, Habakkuk, and also with a weird name. So Habakkuk was writing about 20 years before Nahum in the same situation. And he was looking at what the Assyrians were doing, all the carnage, and he actually calls out to God. Listen to what he says. Habakkuk 1, right at the beginning. He says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are ever before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is saying, look, God, we're looking, and the Assyrians, who are wicked and evil people, they're winning. We're being brought down. What's going on? Where is the justice? Lord, what's going on? We're not going to get into all of Habakkuk. It's great. It's the next book. You could go there next week. Um, but God's answer is amazing. Because God says to him, look, you don't think I'm doing anything? Man, I'm doing stuff that you wouldn't even believe if I told you. So, so let me give you just a little glimpse is what he does. And he tells him about what we read today. He says, I'm raising up an army. The Babylonians, the, the Chaldeans they're called. And they're going to come and they're going to wipe out the Assyrians. That's what I'm doing. That's the magnitude of my sovereign hand that I'm in work in history. I hear your calls for justice. I am at work. And we see that in our text. We see the, the fulfillment of that prophecy that God had been for, for long time working things out so that his will would be accomplished, so that justice would be served. And that's, that's our second point. So firstly, in this event, God is restoring his people. But secondly, God defends the oppressed. I'm going to read the next section, verses 3 to 9, where you see the actual battle, where God, sort of taking control of the Babylonian army, sends them in to besiege Nineveh. And here's what it says. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. 
He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped and she is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. It's pretty intense. It's pretty, <clears throat> pretty forceful. It's a chaotic scene. We see there that the, the Babylonians, they are a well-trained army, well-equipped. They've got cypress spears. Those are the best. They fly the straightest. I don't, I don't know. I think they're pretty good. What we see, though, is that this army that God is, God is rallying, they are eager to go and take over the city. You see that in verse 5. They, they almost stumble over themselves. They set up siege towers, which are these wooden contraptions. They roll to the edge of a fortified city so they can jump over the walls. It protects them. But that's not actually what what ends up helping them to breach the walls. What helps them to breach the, the walls is something that the Ninevites were proud of. And that is their water system. They had a river flowing through Nineveh. We have a picture of it here. This is the outline of the city. Um, you see that river, the, the Tigris River kind of runs through it there. And uh, that was a source of pride because they had all these dams and sluice gates which would allow enough water into the city so they would always have fresh water supply. Well, the, the Babylonians, they took control of that and they opened up all the floodgates. And so the water rushed in and it took out part of the wall. The imagery there is of the palace itself being washed away. But really what we have is Nineveh is, is undone. The two images, one is of a, a princess or a mistress that is being abducted, being taken away. The other is of a pool of water that Nineveh is, is emptying and it cannot be refilled. All of the wealth that they had plundered from others is now being plundered from them. I'm not sure about you, but this scene, uh, it really, in my mind, reads like a movie, like a movie storyboard. You, you can just picture the action of it. Uh, I'm a little older, not as old as some of you, but a little older. So the movie that came to my mind is uh, Steven Spielberg's World War II epic, Saving Private Ryan. If you remember that, that was a movie that when I saw it was just so gritty and real, you really felt like you were in the midst of the battle. In particular, the, the invasion scene where they, they land on the beaches of Normandy, and all the allied troops are coming. It's just a massive scale. There's bullets flying everywhere. And they're, they're trying to take the, the cliffs. And the reason it's compelling is not just because of the action or because of the violence, but because of the meaning behind it. And I see there a parallel in that event and what God is doing here. And just to kind of lead us into to that heart of God, to liberate the captives, I would like to read for you some remarks spoken by Ronald Reagan on the 40th anniversary of D-Day. So if you can picture this scene, he's there on the cliffs there in France, and he's speaking to a group of people, uh, some of the veterans who are there with him. And this is what he says. He says, We're here to mark that day in history when the Allied armies joined in battle to reclaim this continent to liberty. For four long years, much of Europe had been under a terrible shadow. Free nations had fallen. Jews cried out in the camps. Millions cried out for liberation. Europe was enslaved and the world prayed for its rescue. Here in Normandy, the rescue began. Here the Allies stood and fought against tyranny in a giant undertaking unparalleled in human history. We stand on a lonely windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and cries of men. And the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. 
At dawn, on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, 225 rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers on the edge of the cliff shooting down at them with machine guns, throwing grenades, and the American rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of the cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves up over the top, and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. Forty summers have passed since the battle when you fought here. You were young the day you took these cliffs. Some of you were hardly more than boys with the deepest joys of life before you. Yet you risked everything. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives and take these cliffs? What inspired all the men of the armies that met here? We look at you and somehow we know. It was faith. It was belief. It was loyalty and it was love. See, some of you may take issue with reading a statement like that. You may have questions, you know, about whether violence is, is biblically justified in those kinds of situations, whether God necessarily blesses armed conflict, even if you think you're right, whether we shouldn't seek peace instead of war, and those are fair questions. But that's not exactly my point. My point is that the heart of those men was to liberate those who were held captive. The heart of the allied armies was to recognize that there was an evil that was threatening to overtake the world and that they saw their opportunity, their responsibility to stop it. And you see that that's God's own heart for the people who are held captive in the world. It's the very same thing, except that in God's case, it's a pure love. It's a pure power. It's a sovereignty that is working throughout history so that the captives would be set free. That's what we see here as he sends the army in to deal with those who've been oppressing the, his own people and the other people in the region, that God is saying there is an answer to this type of tyranny, and it is me. Ultimately, it is me, that I am orchestrating the events of the world to bring about my will, but also, ultimately, there will be an end to this type of tyranny. Now, we know that this end is not here. We know as we think about this topic of justice and injustice and what we're called to, we should know that part of the call of God is for us to do something about it. I mean, I was, I was just looking online at some of the major injustices in the world today. They are massive. For example, uh, the International Labor Foundation says that there are 21 million people estimated worldwide trapped in some, some form of slavery, mostly due to human trafficking. 21 million people, and yet the U.S. State Department says there have been only 9,000 convictions in that same time period for those that were engaged in human trafficking. That's a huge gap in terms of justice. Likewise, the UN Refugee Agency calculates that there's about 68.5 million people that are now refugees, displaced by some form of conflict. So Syria, Afghanistan, southern Sudan all those places that have been worn torn for years, 68 and a half million people, about 100,000 have been resettled. That's a major gap in injustice. And the call of God on us as the church is to do something. We should 
echo the words. I found these words in a tweet from Maria Fernanda Espinosa, president of the UN General Assembly. She said this, On this World Day against trafficking in persons, let us come together around the key issues of prevention, protection, and prosecution to build a future where this crime cannot exist. And we would say yes. Yes, in whatever opportunities we have, whatever resources we have, there are refugees here amongst us that are coming to our country. We should care for them. We should seek to help them resettle. That is part of our role as the church. But we need to recognize that that, that will not be, there will not be an end, an ultimate end to injustice simply by the power of the world. The only real answer, ultimate answer, is that there is a powerful and loving God who has a track record of defending the oppressed and liberating the captives. We see that here in our text. We see it in the way that God is working in the pages of the Bible and the pages of history. And we see it most clearly in Jesus himself. For Jesus came with the expressed purpose of freeing us from tyranny in our lives. The tyranny of sin that, that holds us captive, that leads to all of this type of injustice. And we also see it in Jesus who spoke these words about himself. This is his first public gathering. This is what he says. He quotes Isaiah in Luke 4. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, the promise of God is that through Jesus, God will secure and defend our freedom. This is an absolute truth, one that is true for all of humanity, but it may leave you wondering, you know, Matt, that sounds great, but what about, I mean, what about me t today? Because today there's, there's things going on in my life and I just, I don't know if, I mean, no one knows about them. I'm not sure what to do about it. I, I'm not sure that, that Jesus returning one day is actually going to help me today. And part of the answer is that there's hope in that for you. But the other part is that you need to know that, that the church exists. We are here to advocate for those who are in trouble. And I would encourage you, if there's a situation in your life where there is abuse, where there is mistreatment, there's something going on, uh, please come and talk to me. Please come and talk to somebody you know at the church. It, it is our role to come and do what we can for us as a community to care for those around us and to step in to protect those who need protecting. And ultimately, we get this call from the Lord himself who is actively engaged in this type of work throughout history. God defends the oppressed. But what we see also here in this text, this last section, our third point, God defends the oppressed, but God also punishes the wicked. Both of these things are essential. I'm going to read the last uh, few verses here, beginning in verse 10. Remember, this is now God speaking to Nineveh, who has been besieged, been kind of destroyed. It's now describing Nineveh. It says this, Desolate, desolation, and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb, the lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots with smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. 
And so here we see how God treats those who deal in wickedness. The dominant metaphor is that of a lion or a, a pride of lions. And at the beginning, uh, you see there that they are, a, they are a proud pride of lions. They are the dominant force. They, they tear uh, their prey to pieces. They strangle their prey. The, the lions themselves, they bring food for the lionesses and for the, for the cubs. They lounge in their den. They're confident in their role at the top of the food chain. They're not worried about anyone coming to disturb them. But you see that this image is undermined right from the start. That what we see in verse 10 is now true of them. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. <coughs> Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. See, the young lions are now devoured. Their prey is cut off. This is Nineveh. This is Nineveh finally brought to the point of desperation after all those years of conquest and power. And what we need to see here is it's not just that God stops them in their tracks. It's not just that he overtakes their city. That is true. That is essential for justice that those who are doing wrong are stopped. But also, God punishes the wicked. He holds them to account for what they've done. And that also is needed to bring peace to those who've endured injustice. You see this when you talk to, to those who are you know, involved in a criminal trial, perhaps, and someone they know has been hurt, and so th they ask them, what do you hope is done here? They, they will almost always say, I just I want justice to be served. I want this person to get some jail time. I want to know that, hear the guilty plea. In fact, it reminded me of, of an interview I heard with a, uh, a prosecutor, like a district attorney in the Cleveland justice in, uh, you know, system, and there's a reporter asking him, his name's Brian Radigan, asking him about um, jail time. And her question was, you know, why do, we have this, why do we have these big jail sentences, like 20, 30 years? What's the point? Is it deterrent? Like, is the reason, in your opinion, that we have these kind of big jail sentences so that other people would be deterred from committing crimes? But listen to what he says. He says, you know, deterrence and laws and how to fix communities and all that type of stuff, I try not to think about it that way. I think it's just... I think we're better off worrying about the victims here. Because when I'm talking to somebody that had their son killed or their daughter killed or their mother raped and murdered, they don't care about the deterrent. They don't care about somebody else's kid or whatever. They care about what I'm doing for them. And that's how I try to keep it. See what he's saying there. What he's saying is that there, there's some effect of these sentences on, on deterring future crime. But what, what he sees as most effective is that it brings help it brings comfort to those who've been hurt. It shows them that the person that ruined their lives will be held to account. The reporter, her name's Sarah Coding, she sums it up this way. I'll put it on the screen. See, Brian, the, the prosecutor, he concentrates on the only result that he can see day to day, which is when some measure of peace descends on a crushed family. So that's what he aims for, a punishment big enough to trigger the healing power of retribution. What she's saying, what, what Brian is saying is that there is healing. There's peace that comes from knowing that someone who did you wrong is being punished. Because what it says is that you matter. That the hurt that you went through matters. That we've taken note and that they are paying for it. That's the essence, one of the essences of justice. That peace comes when you know that that evil will not, that person will not get off scot-free. Do you see that that is what God is, that's his role in the universe. To make clear for us 
that we would know that, that there is no instance of evil or sin that will be unpunished. Now, you might wonder, I mean, it's a lot of talk about retribution, a lot of talk about sort of vengeance and, and answer to evil. And you might wonder, you know, Matt, I kind of thought we were supposed to pray for our enemies, right? Like, aren't we supposed to, aren't we supposed to pray for them, even those people who are mean to us? How, how does that fit? Because it seems here that you're saying that God, God is saying you can have peace knowing that I will punish them. H- how does that work with the call to pray for those who persecute us? Well, they actually work hand in hand. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul lays this out for us so we can see the dynamic. Here's Romans 12, 18 and 19. It says, Beloved, so speaking to Christians, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what it's saying there is that there is peace from knowing that God will deal with all evil. And part of that means that either, there's only two things. For those who are involved in wickedness, those who are wicked, two things will happen. One, God will redeem them. That's what happened to us. If you're a Christian, you were wicked, you were evil, you still are a little bit, but, but God is redeeming you. Through the blood of Christ, you were redeemed, you were made new in Christ. The punishment that you deserved wasn't just evaporated, it was put on Christ himself. That, that sin was still held to account, it's just that Jesus stepped in for you. That's the grace of God. But the other option, sadly, is that there are those who are going to reject Jesus and they will be held to account. There is no instance where there is an evil in God's universe where someone forgets about it or someone doesn't deal with it. He is the one. He is the ultimate judge. And that is meant to bring us peace. That is meant to bring us to a point where we can say, Lord, I don't have to consume myself with seeking vengeance, the people around me, those who've hurt me, those who've wronged me. Lord, that is in your hands. Lord, help me to have a soft heart that I might be gracious to the people around me who've hurt me, as you've been gracious to me. Because we can have peace. No one's getting off scot-free. God will deal with everyone graciously or fairly. And in that sense of God's justice, we can breathe easier, even if we're in the midst of it. See, the people of God, they, they, they were in the midst of it. They were enduring the oppression. And so Nahum comes and brings a word. Look, God is, God is working God is dealing with those things that you, are difficult for you to see. In God's universe, no one gets away with anything. But it may be that today, it's hard, to, it's hard to grasp that. It may be that we feel somewhat forgotten. It may be that we feel very low. And it may be that we're seeking justice. And my hope is that this word, which was intended to encourage you, would actually do that that you would see that there's nothing in your life that God does not see and that he is actively working to bring about a, a revival, a restoration in your own heart and to deal with those around you who are oppressed. I would say again, I would say again that, that if you are in a situation where you need help, please come. Please speak with us. But I also would say, can we ask that God would give us this heart, this heart of of loving justice, of knowing, of being certain that, that justice will come, but also having a, a soft heart towards those that are 
oppressing us. That we would, that we would exemplify the gospel in that. Because that's Jesus. That's who Jesus was. He was bringing justice and yet he was taking on the injustice on himself. And in that, there is great hope for us as a people, for the people of the world. So, we've seen three things, all to do with God's character, all, all to do with who he is in our lives. Number one, God will restore his people. Number two, God will defend the oppressed. And number three, God will punish the wicked. May we find hope and peace in that today. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for this vivid depiction of your justice. God, I pray that we would take heart in that. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize, Jesus, that there will be a day when you will return. And Jesus, you will bring justice. You will hold every evil person to account, every instance of sin. God, that includes us, even those of us who are your children. But thank you, Lord, that our sin has been taken away. We want it, Lord, for everyone that we know, everyone in our city. We want, God, for people to have the hope that is in you. But Lord, we thank you for the sure knowledge that no matter how people treat us, no matter what evil is done to us, Lord, that you see it, that you know it, and God, that you will hold it to account. I pray, Lord, that you would, that you would liberate us from the, from the sense of needing to get vengeance. I pray, Lord, that you would bring forgiveness into our heart. Lord, that you would free us from the bitterness and anger that we have towards others. Lord, that you would give us the peace of knowing that, that it will not be forgotten and that our call is to love and to trust in your justice. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.